Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist. And I'm Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist with the First Steps Program in Louisville, Kentucky. How are you, Laura? I'm really great. How are you? Are are we doing this via cell phone? (laughs) I think so. (laughs) We're both having Internet problems, so hopefully we can make it through the entire show. But if you lose us, sorry, it's... Insight's fault, our cable carrier here and in, in internet provider here in Louisville. We're both having problems and we live, what, about 20 miles apart maybe? 15 yeah, they miles must be apart. Having a big problem, but anyway, we're so high tech, we got past it anyway. <laughs> I'm very impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping so anyway. Let's just see how it goes. Okay. Well, today. Yeah, today is Sunday, November 14th. If you're listening now, you're listening live, and we would love to have you call us. We think we can take callers. Um, the call-in number is one seven one eight seven six six four three three two. So if you have a question about your toddler's late talking or communication delays, we would absolutely love to take a stab at answering that. But unless someone calls, we are going to just plow ahead with three questions from three great parents, and we even have a question from a dad today, which I love, and so I'm excited that we'll get to hear uh, a dad's take on this, the male perspective, but we're going to start with a dad question. question in quite some time, have we? I know, I know, so I was so excited to get that. That one actually came in on my website, and if you're not a normal listener, for the show, the website is teachmetotalk.com, and there's a slew of articles on there that you can read about uh, helping your child learn to communicate more effectively at home. So take a look at that if you've not ever done that before. And this one was po- this question was posted by a mom named Alicia, and I'll go ahead and read that, Kate, unless you want to. Go ahead. Okay, she says, my son is two and eight months. He is receiving therapy for speech and developmental therapy, and he's been uh, for a little uh, over six months. He has a huge vocabulary, and he speaks in two- to four-word phrases. He is not using I or me, my, or you very often, so he's not using pronouns. He says mine on occasion. (laughs) We had a caseworker come in to consult on whether or not to evaluate him for autism. She didn't think there was a concern because he spontaneously speaks and shows interest in others. My concerns are these. He still echoes probably 20% of the time, and he's always been a very independent player, although recently he's been asking Mommy Play, and she has that in quotes, more, and he wants to engage his toys for conversation, for Tim Play, etc., He has been obsessed with certain subjects, such as football and sports or trains and train tracks. He sees details in everything, lines, crosses, shapes, etc. He loves, he plays laying down with his head to the ground or like he's watching his cars with his head turned at times. We've seen that a time or two, huh, Kate? Oh, Um, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> he loves to run, and although now he will stay next to me and walk when I ask him to, he turns his head to the side when he walks and throws the ball sometimes. He loves to tackle. He used to line up his cars, although he's not obsessed with keeping them that way, and I haven't seen him do that as much lately. He repeats things over and over a lot, or at least until I tell him I heard you. His speech is improving, but he's still only asking the question, where did 
and she's got a blank go, and not any other questions. His head is in the 90th percentile, but his height is as well. Any thoughts or ideas? He is full of life and smiles and loves on me all the time. He loves me or his sister to play with him now. Should we get a second opinion or officially have him diagnosed? Thank you so much for your input. And then she wrote me a few days later after I sent her an email back and said, I'm probably not going to be able to... Um, answer you in depthly by email, but I'd love to use this question on the show. And so she sent me back, you know, go ahead and do it. And she said, just to clarify a few things, it was a social worker trying to diagnose autism who came in for an hour to consult with us on whether or not we needed a full-blown evaluation. She works with the therapist that we've had through early intervention. She feels like his red flag tendencies were not a concern because this didn't interfere with his functioning. I don't know if that makes sense to you. She says, I guess my biggest concerns are the echoing, not using pronouns, visual stimming, and his focus on certain subjects. Maybe some of this is just normal for a two-year-old, especially with a language delay. I just don't want to waste any time for different treatments if this truly is autism or PDD health. So she's asking for our advice on whether... She should pursue an autism diagnosis with someone else or whether or what um, other kinds of treatments that she should pursue. And my advice just initially to her was it sounds like he is making really good progress in the uh, six months that she's had him in therapy. He's using phrases, which, again, a little bit behind where we would want to see a kid who's two years, eight months. Uh, she said two to four word phrases. We would want um, kids turning three to be talking in sentence length, uh, you know, which would be four or more word sentences most of the time. So he's just a tad off that, but not, not too much. That doesn't sound huge. She did say he's really increased his vocabulary, and she's gotten really specific about him not using pronouns, which I guess she's read some of those developmental charts and said, <laughs> oh, at two and a half, he ought to be using those pronouns. Um, and so she's a little bit concerned about that. Overall, I would say that he does have some of those sensory things that we, some of those red flags that we look for with children if we're trying to decide if they're on the spectrum. But even if she got a diagnosis, I don't know how that would change what she's doing for him treatment-wise. So I'm, unless she is just wringing her hands night and day worried sick about him, I don't know that I would uh, pursue an additional diagnosis unless it meant that they were going to get more therapy. How do you feel about that, Kate? Um, <clears throat> well, like you said when you were reading it, we've seen a lot of kids who exhibit a lot of these behaviors, particularly the kind of visual stimmy kind of stuff where he's laying on the floor right. and watching the toys. I see that quite a bit with little boys. Um, yeah. And in general, you know, it sounds like you pointed out he has made really good progress. I know if I were working with this child, she doesn't really tell us where he started out language-wise, but we have to assume he was significantly more delayed or he probably wouldn't have started in earlier events in it too. Right. Um, so it sounds like language-wise he's made great progress. Um, you know, I, one of my soapboxes or frequently uh, discussed topics is that whole gray area of autism. Right. And yeah. um, if I were seeing this child, I would probably be wondering somewhat myself, is he, isn't he? 
you know, the fact that he's made such nice progress in six months is is a very good sign and would, would probably have me leaning towards probably not. Um, I think that... Yeah, you know, and I that, agree with that, too. I mean, I think mm-hmm. he's made such good progress that I don't know... With or without the diagnosis, would that would the diagnosis even have mattered until this point? Because he's coming along. He's he's again gaining language, and you know she wrote a slew of things. But I interrupted you. Go ahead with what you were going to say. Oh, what was I going to say? Um, <laughs> there are the red flag behaviors. You know, mostly it looks like you know a lot of visual stuff as far as. He likes to line things up. Very big into patterns. Um, I guess I, I, you know, it's very hard to know how how significant, how much of his time is he spending. Sounds like the lining up has gotten better. Doesn't do it as much. He's not rigid about when they're become unlined up. Which some kids who line up things if you right. disrupt the pattern, they really go off. Doesn't sound like he does. But you know the things like finding patterns and. You know, it sounds like show him something, and he may well point out a triangle or a circle or a cross or something. Um, And, you know, I can see her concern. I guess the one thing I would wonder about is, is this child a candidate for some OT? That's exactly what I have written down, yeah. Yeah, because he does have some sensory things. Um, It doesn't sound like they're really impeding his progress because he's making really nice progress. On the other hand, um, you know, I I feel about OTs the way I feel about all therapists. If she can get a good one, probably would help, um, you know, help with offering alternatives to those behaviors, uh, help with giving her ideas to do with him to that would just kind of generally decrease those behaviors. I don't know that they'll eliminate them entirely, but it may help diminish the, the, the prevalence of, of these particular behaviors. So I would say, yeah, this may be, an, uh, you know, that may be her first option. As far as the, the actual diagnosis, is it going to change anything at this point? Probably not. Um, and I'm not sure he'd get it, you know, so. Right, I'm not either. I, no, he might, based, you know, he might on a bad day if he saw somebody who was fairly liberal with the diagnosis, he, it's possible that he might. And it really depends on where he lives. I mean, we've talked about this so much on the show, and I certainly have talked about this as I've done conferences this fall. In Indiana, it's a little bit harder to get an autism diagnosis. In Kentucky, it's hard when you're little, but it's really easy when you're older. In Ohio, it seems like... Those therapists say that they're over-diagnosing that and are too generous with that uh, label for children even, you know, as young as two. So, again, it it really might depend on regionally where they are. Some state programs are, they're channeling um, children to get that diagnosis because the state still pays for uh, a portion of the therapy when it's uh, an ABA provider or autism driven whereas and they're giving the diagnosis just so that the kids can continue to qualify for the program because and get 
um, their services that way because if they just call it a language delay, they're going to need to bill the parents' insurance for speech therapy. So some state programs, they've said that they're kind of channeling children that way when they wouldn't normally do that to err on the side of the kid to make sure that the kid and the family get services that otherwise they wouldn't get. So lots of other factors could go into that, you know, even beyond <laughs> what a professional might see or not see on a given day for a diagnosis. So I think there are other factors that, you know, we don't have the information. We don't know where she lives. So we don't know those other things that might be happening. But it did sound like that the person that came in was pretty objective in that, yeah, I see these little quirks that he has too. However, I don't think that this is prohibiting him from making progress. And because of that, um, I don't think that he... Uh, would get that diagnosis or, or or would even be eligible for a full-blown assessment at this point. And I would kind of probably agree with her, but on the other hand, if this mom is laying awake at night, <laughs> driving herself crazy, making herself sick with worry, um, she might ought to pursue it just to feel like she's left no stone unturned in her uh, quest to get him help. And I know I'm, that's kind of both sides of the coin. <laughs> uh, but on the other hand, sometimes parents have to go ahead and do the assessment, not so much for the kid but for them. You know what I mean? Even if it's just to rule it out and have somebody say right. no, it's not. Um, there's a lot of comfort. Or that he doesn't meet the full criteria, yes, probably what right. I would say, don't you think? Yeah. And she's obviously, you know, based on she's talking about uh visual stem and she's talking about PDD so she's obviously done a lot of research and homework or she's some sort of right. professional. We don't know any of that but she's, right. um, she's gotten some information somewhere so she's obviously looking into it is already knowledgeable about it but yeah that would be my first thing as far as this scenario is think about OT um, Right, me maybe too. That will, maybe that will help with some of those behaviors. And, you know, you went on about know-how and the end. I don't mean to say you went on, but, you know, you talked about that. <laughs> and I will say, you know, it, it bothers me. And I, I, as a mother, um, if I were this mother or a mother of a child I was terribly concerned about, I would really hate. And it bothers me as a therapist, um, you know, that there's so much uh, variability or gray area or you know, yeah. um, in this whole autism diagnosis, and, and ideally it wouldn't be that way. You know, it would be right. uh, some sort of a test, a, a um, lab result, and they more objective. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes or no, absolutely yes or no. And the fact is, at this time, it just isn't that sort of diagnosis, and there's lots of subjectivity. Um, you know, based on who, what somebody sees and how they interpret that bad information. And I don't like that at all, but that's the reality at this point. So she could take this child to two different people right where she is and get two different answers. That's you She know, probably I, could. Yeah. I hate that, but that's the truth. So that's kind of like she's doing everything she can with the therapy she's getting. She may want to think about OT as part of the equation um, because sometimes that can... Uh, provides some, and it, it also depends on. Well, we know her her developmental therapist and her speech therapist are probably pretty good because 
he's making nice progress. They may right. already be doing some sensory kind of stuff that, uh, you know, so it would be a place to look. It would be another part of the, the puzzle that she maybe hasn't thought about yet, and she may want to bring that on. It also depends on the state they're in as to how much service she can get. You know, right. will she have to take less of the other two, perhaps? So there are a lot of variables there, but I I would be thinking maybe OT for this guy, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe, me too. The other thing I would want her to do is go ahead and get his preschool programming in place, whether that be being evaluated, excuse me, through the local public school system and have a have the public school preschool program in place, um, and he can continue his therapy, his speech therapy through the school, he may get OT or may not through the, the school system as well. So that's certainly something she needs to pursue. She's not going to do public preschool for whatever reason. She uh, might also go ahead and line up therapies after three, whether she uses her insurance or um, and or, and probably I would err on the side with and, um, goes ahead and does a private preschool as well. So certainly she should be looking down the road, not just about whether he's going to get the diagnosis or not get the diagnosis, but what programming happens after three. And she has four months, so she has some time, but sometimes parents wait on that. And like in our area, you really have to get on a good speech pathologist or a good clinic's waiting list for several months before a child turns three so that they have a spot um, for speech therapy after three if you're going to go the additional outpatient therapy services route. So that's something I would probably use my time um, for pursuing things for him, too, is to look at ways to continue treatment, get more treatment, rather than spending more time on getting a diagnosis. So that that the reason that I agree with or that I think that, too, is because in the end, it doesn't really matter if he has the diagnosis or not if they're doing all the right treatments for him. And, again, we don't really know exactly what they're doing, but it must be good or working because he's making some progress and he is coming along. And some of the things she said, some of those little quirks or those red flag behaviors, she said are resolving. Um, so, again, I, I feel like she's on the right track, and I would use my time as his mom to uh, focus on treatment and not specifically on the diagnosis. And that's and I, I think advice. she's thinking, the, when she wrote back to you, Laura, her closing thing was, I just don't want to waste time, any, uh, to waste any time for different treatments. And I don't think, uh, you know, if he had a diagnosis today, um, I would say, why would you change speech and developmental therapy? It's working. Um, right. Well, I think a lot of parents, when they start to research Autism or PDD, they get directly linked or quickly find stuff about um, ABA therapy, right. which is right. short for Applied Behavioral Analysis, and in some states that's really big, and in other states it's not so big. In our opinion, or let me speak for myself, in my opinion, at two and a half, this isn't a kid that I would say, oh, go for ABA. He's making great progress, and I think probably... Some of his biggest things are now he wants his sister and his mommy to play with him. He's he's telling them, play with me. He's right. you know, much more connected than he was. So, so in other words, his social skills are much stronger than they were six months ago. 
and that's the basis, I think, the foundation for the rationale, perhaps, for the kind of therapy we do, which is a real play-based, social-connected, you know, ABA is not that. It's very mm, rigid and um, uh, methodical about the way they address children and their development and the skills, and, and I know there are all different forms of ABA, and I'm not passionate. I think for some kids at some ages, it's it's the way to go. You know, it's the best right. avenue for progress. I don't think for this little guy, he, he's he's making great progress in a much more play-based, social, um, socially responsive type therapy, and to me, that's got to be the foundation for, for um, his continued progress, and it's working. So I think she can let that go. You know, let's say this. If this child were here and he did get a diagnosis today, nothing would change therapy-wise tomorrow if it's working. Right. You know, I mean, right. so regardless why would you? of therapy, yeah. yeah, why would you? He's, you know, it sounds like, and, you know, she said he's always been a really independent player, but that's becoming less and less so. Um, so that you know, those were probably things initially that she and the therapist were all concerned about. But it sounds like he's he's letting that go and he's figuring out. I like to play with my family and I'm going to insist on it. And he's using words to do it. So that's yeah, totally and he's initiating. Yeah, mm-hmm. and she said that he is echoing some. He still has what we would call echolalia. And she said, but only 20% of the time. And sometimes he says things to the point where she says, I hear you, but then he stops. And I, I kind of like that in a kid, <laughs> a kid who kind of keeps going until they get confirmation. Now, again, I don't mean over the top that he becomes verbally stuck on things and that he's really hard to redirect, and he might be doing some of that at two, but she said that she can tell him, um, I heard you, and he kind of moves on. And so that tells me he really is depending on her feedback and her response, and he's initiating communication until he gets that. And, and what a great skill. Some kids who are on the spectrum never really get that whole, you know, they might do their whole little soliloquies and, and you know, they're echolalic and are really kind of going on, but you can't really redirect them. And he sounds like he's very directable because when she tells him, you know, I heard you, he uh, moves on. And so if that's certainly the case, even that's not really problematic right now. So it just sounds like he's making good progress, even this really picky thing she pointed out, like not using uh, pronouns, those are going to come. He is he is right now, you know, if I had to guess and kind of put where he is language-wise at that 24 to 27-month level with using those short phrases, pronouns typically come in by about 30 months. So he is right on the verge of that developmentally. So she just needs to model those language forms that she wants to see and set up situations so that he has to use those. If he is a little echolalic, that means he's probably great at imitating, and so she would just really use lots of those pronouns in her uh, in her speech and have him imitate lots of those little phrases, and perhaps if he gets some of those in carrier phrases, he'll then be able to use them and then generalize them over to um, more spontaneous conversation after that. But I, I wouldn't... Um, I know she's concerned about him, and I know she wants him to continue to make progress, but I would just keep doing what she's doing and, and not worry about adding anything else because it sounds like he's just coming right along, like like you've said, too. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So maybe Alicia or Alicia, if she wants to uh, write us back with any other any other um, concerns or any other information that might make us feel differently, until then, pat yourself on the back. Mom, you sound like you've done a great job for him and you're uh, continuing to kind of, you know, put your focus toward making sure he gets services after three and just keep going because it sounds like he's on the road to uh, doing really, really um, better developmentally. And OT is a good idea. I had that written down, too, when you were talking about that. I will add this, Laura, which I don't mean to uh, contradict what I've said thus far, but I will say this. I've already talked about the gray diagnosis of autism. It's, you know, it's you never quite know. I don't feel like what you're going to get and what you're going to hear. There are reasons as a child gets older, <clears throat> if she continues to have to concern and is right. still very aware of the red flags, and you know, there may come a point where, well, she may want to have a diagnosis or have an evaluation now to to give herself uh, peace of mind. But if the things continue to be true, there are reasons, and I guess the biggest one in my mind is additional funding if a child has a diagnosis. Right. Um, that, that might be through the public school system they get additional money for therapy, or it might be through waiver programs. Um, I think every state, state has some sort of, a number of waiver programs, and that's just money that's been allotted for kids with specific diagnoses, and one of them is autism. And it may be that at some point um, what she's getting through the public school system or her private preschool or grade school, whatever avenue they pursue, she feels it's not enough. And that would be a reason that if she still, you know, hopefully... By the time he's five, he'll be doing great, and therapy will be a thing of the past, and it won't matter. But if this is something that she's going to deal with for for a prolonged period, it may be there's a point at which she wants a diagnosis, even if he is in that gray area, because she gets right. he'll get money in order to get him the help he needs. So there is that. We can't deny that there is sometimes a good reason to to get a diagnosis. So at this point, she's right. getting... She's getting therapy. He's doing well. Um, I wouldn't. And she'll like know when she moves on, and if when he goes to preschool, if the teacher is starting to say, "Uh oh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. we need to talk about some of these things," um, she'll know if she needs to pursue a diagnosis at that point. And she'll know too if if suddenly he doesn't qualify for services, and she thinks, "Oh boy, I don't want to be without these supports here." You know, again, getting an evaluation at that point and perhaps getting a diagnosis, but he may not even get it at that point. But she'll know. She'll know if mm-hmm. she should um, continue to pursue that. And, you know, some kids that we think look pretty good at two and that we think, oh, gosh, he's kind of borderline here, but he would, we would not give want to give him that diagnosis, um, do as they get older, have some additional issues that weren't identified at two, or they have big academic problems that would, when when those kids are five and six and seven, and at that point a lot of parents pursue getting a more formal evaluation then, uh, and it's because things haven't gotten better and things haven't moved along, or sometimes 
kids might actually look a little worse in that situation than they did even developmentally when they were two and three and getting lots of services. So she'll know. And, and again, I hate to say that because I don't want to make any moms unnecessarily worry and think, oh, oh boy, I thought this was going to be over now. Uh, but she'll know at that point if she should uh, pursue testing. You know, the situation I hate, though, is when a mom gets a child evaluated at two and they say, no, he's not on the spectrum, and then they stop everything. They stop therapy. They don't really do too much about preschool. They kind of go on, you know, just chug along, and then all of a sudden the kid is six and in first grade, and the first grade teacher is saying, wait a minute, we got a big developmental problem here. And the school goes ahead and gives the diagnosis. And then those parents, because they did the assessment at two and kind of let things slide all the way until their kid was six, and then they feel betrayed and they feel um, guilty for that time that they didn't go ahead and pursue services and didn't do all that they could to help their child developmentally. And those parents, I feel like, are in a worse situation than any other kind of scenario that we've talked about because they kind of let their guard down and felt like, phew, this isn't autism. I don't have to worry anymore. And then there's, you know, it smacks them in the face again when they're when their kids get older. But this mom does not sound like that would happen to her. No, <laughs> because, I don't think so. Yeah, because she's, she's so uncomfortable. Make sure but haven't you had that he... happen? Yeah, yeah, but haven't you and, had and that happen? We've had kids who did who had who had autism ruled out at two, and then they hear it again at five or four or six or. I bet right. there are some real horror stories from parents who could tell us, well, this one said he was, and this one said he wasn't, and this one said right. he was, and this one said he wasn't. And I'm one of my mantras is, you know, deal with the issues you're having, not the label. You know, and she's right, definitely right. dealing with the issues she's having. So, right, she's you know, on the right but track. But yes, it does, and I think a lot of parents when they hear it's not. Like you said, not a lot, but there are those parents, and, and I understand it. They they breathe a big sigh of relief, and they think, whew, dodge that bullet, everything's fine. Yeah. And then it may not really be fine. So Right. And that's happened to more than a couple of kids on my caseload. I mean, I might be the only person saying, Mom, I'm really telling you, <laughs> I'm really concerned about him regardless of what the developmental pediatrician said who saw him one time for two hours. I've seen him an hour a week for eight months now or a year now, and mm-hmm. this is still what I'm concerned about. And then, you know, a few moms have gotten pretty bit out of shape about that, and they feel like, okay, but the doctor, the person with the MD or the PhD after their name said no. And so Mm -hmm. then they do, again, get hit in the face with it when their child is older. Um, And they feel pretty darn upset. A lot of times, you know, with the professional who said no, and then with themselves because, again, they feel like they wasted that time when they would have been doing other things. But that, does again, doesn't pertain to this mom because she's, um, already really on top of things, but that information might help some other moms out there. Even if you've gotten that, gotten autism ruled out, but you still have that nagging feeling. Oh, you know, I would say go with your gut instinct on that. But the important thing really is not the label. The important thing is providing consistent services so that he's still getting speech, he's still getting, you know, DI when he's two, and then moving on to a preschool system, looking into OT, still providing those services so that you don't just drop everything 
um, when you get that diagnosis ruled out and continue to give a child the services that he needs. Because now it's critical. Early intervention, birth to three, and then those preschool years are the most critical time as far as making progress and helping determine those little brain pathways um, so that a child really can kind of make up for those delays, um, you know, now would be critical. So it, it, it is terrible for those parents who do let their guards down and, and think it's all been ruled out and then they have to hear it again. That that makes me feel badly for them. All right, we need to move on to the next question. We're not going to get finished with this one. And this is a cute question. This is from the dad. Are you ready? Wait, I call. I get to read it. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I want a cute question. Okay. Says hi, Laura and Kate. He forgot to put that on there. Apparently, <laughs> let's see. I'll likely get slammed for this, but in regard to your original question, and he's referring to an article you wrote, Laura, which was something like um, bad speech therapy better than no speech therapy. Right. And he's he's referring back to that article. He says, in regard to your original question, I believe the answer is yes. He thinks that bad speech therapy is better than no speech therapy. He goes on to say that he has a 40-month-old daughter, um, and he has her on what he calls Nick Jr. therapy. I think it's so <laughs> cute and cute. So yes, cute. Telev- yes, television, he says. And he has made a marked improvement in her vocabulary and intelligibility over the last four months. At 36 months, she was talking plenty, but no one, including us, could understand much. It was a vicious circle where she would uh, initiate conversations but then receive inappropriate feedback, which would end any meaningful dialogue, thus leading to less conversation. So she was trying to talk to them, but they couldn't understand her, and they would respond to something they didn't really understand, and then she'd look at them like, you don't get it at all, and she'd shut up. (laughs) Um, I have kids' therapy where I'm always trying to figure out, and sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't know what they're saying. He says, my theory was that, Quantity would eventually lead to quality. So every night I plug her in front of Nick Jr. and watch the preschool programming with her. The visual context allows me to interpret what she's saying and repeat it back in her to her in proper form so she knows she's been understood. I then prompt her with simple questions in order to maintain the dialogue. I repeat back everything she says once, then continue the conversation. I never try to correct her, only to regenerate more speech, to generate more speech. This can go on for hours because she loves the programming, loves to talk about it, and doesn't feel pressured. In fact, she now gets upset when, uh, with me if I skip an evening. The broad Aww. content, I know, it's cute. The broad content it's also allows, allows me to continually introduce new words and concepts. Whenever she doesn't respond to a question, I simply tell her the answer. After a few days, the new words will magically appear in her conversation. I believe that her intelligibility has doubled during this course, and now even strangers are beginning to understand her. Once she has reached the point that she can dialogue with others, the process should become self-sustaining. In any case, she has her first evaluation with a real speech-language pathologist in a few (laughs) weeks, and I expect an apraxic-type diagnosis to come of it. Her larger problem is consistency, and this has not improved as quickly as the other factors, nor am I qualified to deal with it. In general, though, it appears that simply increasing the quantity or of accurate dialogue will eventually increase the quality of dialogue, something that anyone can do, Ed. Um, what do you think he's talking about here? Is the consistency? He says her larger problem is consistency. 
I think that she probably will get an apraxia diagnosis, and he is... I think he means that sometimes she says a word correctly and then sometimes she doesn't, or she might use inconsistent errors. That sometimes okay. maybe a D would be in a word and then sometimes it's not. And isn't that a hallmark right. of apraxia, too, where kids are really inconsistent? They might say it one way one time and then another way the next time, and then they try to say the same word again, and it's totally different than the first two times they produced it. That's what I think he's he's meaning. Right. Um, yeah, but you know, what, even what, though, is that what you were thinking he meant? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I responded back to him on the on the website, and I said this, Ed. The important thing is that you are regularly spending time with your daughter, responding to what she likes versus trying to introduce her to something new, and targeting her speech in a very naturalistic way, meaning that they're both paying attention to the same thing. She loves TV, and again. We don't push TV for children, especially children under two, because we know that the American Academy of Pediatrics doesn't really support children viewing television, but that would really be kind of the babysitting or mindless kind of viewing where we plop a kid in front of the TV and then walk away, and he's not doing that. He's sitting with her, and they're talking about it, and he has made that activity interactive. And so I think that is a great idea. And he certainly has taken something that his daughter was interested in and joined her there, which that would be following her lead. And he's using that with her, and he's regular about it. He said he was so cute when he said that she gets mad if he tries to skip a night (laughs) because that's their little time together. And so, again, it's a non-traditional way to treat that. But I applaud this dad for coming up with a great way and a great activity um, that he can regularly do with her. And some of the things he's doing, he doesn't think he's doing real speech therapy, but he is. He's recasting, which we know is a speech therapy technique when a child makes an error. You say the the correct form back to them without overcorrecting it or modeling it in an inappropriate way. You simply say it the way that they should say it, and it sounds like he's doing that and he's being real really, really consistent in how he does it, and he's not, uh, you know, he's, again, just modeling what she should say without, um, again, making it really as natural as possible in kind of the context of watching the show and talking about it, and he's introducing this new words to her and new concepts, and all those are things that we do in, quote, unquote, real speech therapy. So even though we might have used... Um, a method that a therapist certainly probably is not going to take a TV show and do, he's still doing very valid techniques and, and research strategies and things that, that speech pathologists would do in sessions. So I, I think he's I think he's done great. And above and beyond that, he said it's working. <laughs> She's sounding better. Her speech is getting clearer. They can understand her more, and even some strangers can understand her. So, again, who in the world can argue with that kind of success. So I, I think he's done a terrific job with that. I do Did you too. want to chime I mean, in on that? He, yeah. Uh, no, just to say that, yeah, he needs, I mean, I think it's funny that he responded to that, uh, your article, because it wasn't necessarily uh, related to anything like this. But, I mean, no. the fact that she's enjoying <laughs> it so much and that she'll do it for a couple hours, I mean, any time you can get a, a language delayed or a language disordered kid to talk for a couple hours, that has got to be therapeutic, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and you know what yes. What he's saying is that quantity eventually leads to quality. 
that's kind of a funny way to say, you know, practice makes perfect. If <laughs> they're working on it, they're targeting it. He has to get her to talk first before they can fix it. So, yeah, yeah, he's doing all the right stuff. Right. And I, I would agree that um, quantity does eventually lead to quality with speech. That's true. I mean, yeah. There may, there may be some things that the, the real live speech therapist can add to his routine or add to what he's doing to to even further enhance it. But, um, I mean, I always... Just tweak it. Parents, yeah. Yeah, just yeah, tweak she, it a little she bit. She may just but, tweak it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I always say to parents, we've got to get them talking before we can fix it. You know, they sometimes think we're exactly. walking and wave our magic wands and they're going to just yeah. start talking in sentences and... <laughs> You need to tell me where to buy one of those magic wands because so far, I don't know about that. No, we have our tricks, but, um, you know, he's he's certainly implementing a lot of the things we would say, um, maybe not with a two-year-old, but this child's three and a half. Three and a half, yeah. -hmm. Yeah, she's three and a half, yeah. Right. What he's doing is, you know, as you said, following her lead, doing what she's interested in, recasting what she's saying, engaging her in back-and-forth dialogue, and that consistency thing, as you said, is one of those. And he's obviously done some homework because he's talking about apraxia. So he has a clue that there may be a diagnosis for her, and he may be right that that's what it is. But sounds like they're... um, closing the language gap and she's getting enough practice in hearing it repeated back enough that, hey, it's working. So keep up the great work, Ed. We like your technique. If it works, we I like think it. So. <laughs> I think so. He did write back, like after oh, he, he wrote and then I wrote and then, yeah, and he wrote. I don't think I sent you this. He says, thanks, Laura. I knew it wasn't a traditional approach, but it seems to work. Eventually I will introduce reading in the hope that one reinforces the other, but she's not ready yet. How wise is Ed to say she is not ready for me to sit down and use this like with a long storybook? I need to keep this on what she likes right now. And lots and lots of therapists are not as smart as that, Ed. (laughs) Lots of therapists would move on to something that she's not ready for, but you were doing such a good job at kind of meeting her where she is developmentally and saying, I'm going to keep it right here because this is where we're going to be most productive. He also says, I'm hard-pressed to understand how even the pros – and I guess he's meaning real therapists, deal with consistency issues since they're systemic errors rather than particular ones. And by that, I I think he's really talking about sometimes she's intelligible and sometimes she's not. Isn't that what you think he means? He's he's meaning, or they're random errors. He says, okay, here's what he says. He says, by consistency, I mean random errors, where speech may be intelligible or not, depending on the sequence. My daughter must not only know a word or phrase, but also be familiar with particular sequences of use in order to achieve intelligibility. In my limited experience, I found that consistency only improves with familiarity. And listening is not adequate. She must also speak in order to improve. That naturally leads back to expressive quantity. Having thought it through, I would propose that expressive quantity followed by accurate interpretation and appropriate feedback leads to familiarity, consistency, and finally intelligibility. Any other thoughts are appreciated. Ed is very philosophical in this, isn't he? I'm guessing he's an engineer or something. Don't you think? He used to have a flow chart, and he has put this on paper, and he has figured it out. But he's right. 
I mean, he's right. If it, at the end of the day, <laughs> we're right. stuck because it's like, yep, yeah, you got it. Yeah. He's got her yeah, talking. And- he's modeling back for her what how it's supposed to sound. Like I said, there are probably some things that a real-life speech therapist will will interject and encourage him to do to help a bit with um, getting her to be a little bit more consistent. However, yeah. it's not going to be a quick fix even with that. It may help it come along a little faster, but um, what he's doing is working. So It is working, and they're working on highly predictable um, phrases, it seems like, because he's saying, you know, she has to be familiar with what we're talking about. Uh, so he certainly is doing that. It sounds like he's doing mass practice. He's having her say the same things over and over and over, and he's found that with that continued practice, she becomes more intelligible. And, and so, again, for somebody who's not a speech therapist, he's doing pretty darn well, don't you think? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and so he's look. He probably is an engineer, or some other kind of scientist, because he's yeah, looking very- at. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's analyzed it. He's really analyzed what he's done, and again, without that master's degree in speech pathology, he has done a pretty good job. So I am glad that she's being seen by a speech pathologist, um, so that the, she can get uh, some additional strategies. I hope that Ed gets to watch some sessions so that he can carry over those techniques with what they're doing at home. Um, My guess is that he's just going to be able to plug in a new uh, strategy or a new trick here or there and get even more um, results. I would be interested to know how she does the rest of the day with uh, making herself understood uh, and it will be interesting to see if he writes us back and tells us what her diagnosis was, if it is indeed apraxia or um, if it's something else. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see because he doesn't say anything about her um, how she understands language or how she does the rest of the day. But it, she's probably he's probably right on with the apraxia thing that this is an apraxia or a really severe phonological disorder and the um, the speech pathologist should be able to tease that out and, and help him kind of know know what he's dealing with and know what would be the best way to tackle that in addition to what he's already done at home. Right. At the beginning, oh, when I was first reading this, I was thinking that she might be using the very first time I read it, which usually for me is reading it, you know, let me explain how the website works. We don't. I don't allow any comments to be posted unless I've read them first because we get an incredible amount of spam on there, and it might be ads for watches or other websites or just a lot of gobbledygook that doesn't make any sense. There, uh, Every day we get maybe 10 or 12 uh, pornographic kinds of messages from different sites. So usually what happens is every day or so I read the comments and I approve the ones that are real comments from parents and delete the rest. So usually when I read a thing through, I'm just reading it really hurriedly and putting it on the website and then I go back and answer it when I have time a day or two later. The first time I read it, I thought that maybe she was using lots of jargon, but I don't think so, not based on the, uh, after I read it again and the other um, comments that she's made, or other comments that he made about her. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, and jargon is, for our listeners, when a child is trying to talk, but there's no 
they aren't really real words. It's kind of that in-between step between that in typical development we might see it at, you know, 16, 17, 18 months where kids are really putting together those longer sound sequences, but they don't have lots of, they might have a word or two here or there that where they're understood, um, but they're not really real words yet. And so I was wondering that the first time if perhaps she was using lots of jargon, but it doesn't sound like that to me. It sounds like she's um, missing lots of sounds or substituting lots of sounds, and that's what's made it so difficult to understand. But it, hopefully Ed will write us back and let us know what the speech pathologist said and and tell us how she's moving along. But I think he's he's done a great job with that. It He sounds so great at this. I wonder why they didn't get her evaluated earlier than three. Perhaps they just felt like she would, since she was trying to talk, that it was just an intelligibility issue and would resolve on its own. But regardless, he's done it now and she's... Um, going to get evaluated. So that'll be interesting for us to hear follow-up. I hope you let us know. Yeah. What's happened with that? All right. We have one more really long question, so I'm kind of reluctant to even start this one tonight. But we have a, about 11 minutes. So what do you think, Kate? Should we go ahead with the long question, or do you want to... Um, Talk about anything else. Do you have a little, what were we calling that, a little clinical, uh, what, what were we calling that for a Intervention while? Intervention insight. Yes, yes. Do you have <laughs> <a> those? <laughs> this would be the non-prepared portion of the show. <laughs> while you think about that, I want to I say a couple things. Okay. Um, so you, you think about your intervention insight if you can think about something differently than what I'm saying. So turn your ears off or whatever if you... If you have to do that, I can never think about something different than what you're talking about. But anyway, on uh, Facebook, for our listeners that are on Facebook, TeachMeToTalk.com has a page, and on there today, I posted a link to Fisher Price's Facebook page. And from their Facebook page, you, if you become a fan of theirs, you can get a 20% discount. Uh, from anything that you order from them online. And I think it's now through November 17th, so if some moms are starting to do, or dads, starting to do some online Christmas shopping, um, that would be a great discount for you to get. So you can access that either on my website at teachmetotalk.com. It's over in the right-hand corner. There's a little column that has the Facebook uh, link on there, and you can link to my page and then link to Fisher Price. So if you are an online shopper, and know some things that you want to get from Fisher Price. You can get a discount if you order that. I think it's over November seventeenth. And they have some really cute little Christmassy things too. Um, I don't think the Christmas choo-choo's on there anymore, but they had some really cute uh, little people Christmas sets that are just darling. That I have a set or two of those. I have the nativity scene set, and then I have a set with Santa. And again, when they had the Christmas choo-choos several years ago, I bought a couple of those and have used those every Christmas since, and those are just some really cute little um, toys to play with when you're doing your um, playing with your child at home or if you're a therapist listening. Those are really big seasonal hits, and I, our ho-ho toys never get old. I'm going to be excited around Thanksgiving when I pull those out and do those. So check that out. That's one thing. Last week, did I say on the show, Kate, about that other um, link that I, I found that online magazine? Do you remember me talking about that last week? I don't think so. 
I don't remember it, no. Let, let me try to look it up real quick. There's an online magazine for parents, and I have forgotten what it's called. Um, let me see if I can find it really quickly. But it's for parents of children with multiple medical issues, and they had some really great articles, especially about GI problems. And every month they kind of tackle a new complex medical issue. And the great thing about that site is it's written completely by parents. And so no, they don't even allow professionals to contribute unless they have a different slant, like, you know, unless they're also parenting a child with these issues. It's called Complex Child Magazine. And again, if you go to my Facebook page, the Teach Me to Talk dot com Facebook page, go down, it's um it was in it's October twenty second, so scroll on down until you see that day and then the link is there. But it it's a great online magazine and I just loved it. And I had two or three families that had written me and these are families of children that I've previously worked with that were asking me different questions about gastrointestinal problems and so I was so excited when I found that magazine and that <laughs> particular month was about that so I was so excited that I could point those parents in that direction and other um, topics that they've had they've had months that uh, this last month was about how families use different kinds of adaptive equipment at home and, and the innovative things that parents have done with special equipment upcoming editions they have another thing in December about GI treatment and surgeries in January they're doing spirituality and morality for um, families of children with special needs so again a really great resource if you're a mom or a dad out there and have lots of really difficult things going on that you may be even having difficulty getting information about I bet you can find it on this website and it's at complexchild.com but it's a monthly online publication and you can access their archives so you can get all the previous months and I thought that was just a great resource I've not had time to look through all those previous months but I just think it sounded like an outstanding um, resource for families. Oh, it's complexchild.com. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't know it's if you're just, working it's with It's an any online magazine. Right now. It's an online magazine, yeah. And I wrote them or sent them a message and told them what a great job they were doing, and they said they are terrible at publicity. <laughs> so they really <laughs> like the plugs because it's something that they, again, they're so busy taking care of their children with that have these really – uh, tough issues or maybe rare conditions. And so they, it started by two moms, and I think that they both had medical backgrounds, but both of them had children who, again, had these really rare um, medical things going on. And, again, it's – and. Uh, you know, I thought about um, our friends, Kate, who's, you know, families that maybe the the child has Rett syndrome or something that's not as common as, you know, the things that we normally talk about on our show. So I thought it would be a really great resource to share with our listeners, a lot of whom are therapists, because I, they tell me at the conferences, I have not had one conference where at least one person didn't say to me, I listen to your show, I listen to your podcast, and I probably shouldn't tell you that, Kate, because that will make you nervous, won't it? (laughs) (laughs) No. But, you know, (laughs) but 
a lot of therapists listen, and so that would be a great resource to um, for them to pass along to families who might be looking for um, additional connections, additional information. So I wanted to share that as well. Okay, while I've shared those things, have you come up with something that you want to talk about with an intervention? Of course not. I've been listening. I've been listening to your... <laughs> I can never do that either. Okay, let me tell you about one more thing that's on the TeachMeToTalk.com Facebook page. This was an article from the New York Times or NewYorkTimes.com, and I posted it on November 3rd, and the lead is autism therapy beginning at six months. And what's happened is um, a group of researchers started looking at children. Let me just guess. Is it in California? (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. It is California, and it's from... (laughs) Did you read it yet? Did you read that? No, no, I didn't. I just knew it had to be California because they are definitely the most progressive in addressing autism in very young children. Yeah, it's from the Mind Institute at the University of California. And, you know, I last summer, remember when I went to that uh, conference here in Louisville, Dr. Esther Hess was her name, and she is Mm -hmm. in some way affiliated affiliated with that and she was talking about this study then and she said what they've done is that they have really started looking at high-risk children and again a high-risk child or high-risk infants and that would be a baby who has a sibling who's been previously diagnosed with autism and so they've been taking a look at these high-risk kids and saying, okay, even as early as six months, if this baby is more interested in objects than people, we are going to go ahead and start some therapy with a focus on training the parents how to talk to him and how to help that child learn to make that social connection. And so that's one of the things that they're writing about in this article is how they're taking this program and they're piloting it with these families. And, again, haven't you worked with families, Kate, that the older child has been diagnosed with autism, so they are scared to death when they have subsequent children. You know, is this child going to be on the spectrum? And so one of the things that they have really started doing, and rightly so, is is helping these parents from an early, early age know that they have got to be right in these babies' faces playing what they call people games, which are our little social games that we talk about all the time, peekaboo, patty cake, really helping children learn to engage with their parents, learn to look at their parents. And, again, sometimes babies like this, you know, it's a real red flag when you see an infant that cares or so hyper-focused on a toy and doesn't give a rip that mommy's right there with the toy. And they're right. saying or that... Or the ceiling fan that, or the, yeah. Right, you know. right. Mm-hmm. Or the hinge on the cabinet door or uh-huh. uh, the boingy thing. The, the, the sun and the way it looks as it comes in and hits the floor, yeah. you know, kind of visually yeah. distracted by inanimate objects or things that most babies don't attend to at all if, you know... If there's an opportunity to work at a person. Yeah, if there's an opportunity to look at a person or look at an object, babies with typically developing uh, communication skills or social skills or whatever you want to call it, babies with typical development, even at six months old, are going to prefer to look at the person rather than the object. And so it's a red flag when you have a six-month-old who is not making a lot of eye contact. And it's it's especially a red flag in a sibling 
of an older child who was already diagnosed with autism. So they're doing these um, parent training programs, which again, it's the the things that they're describing that they do sounds a lot like Laura and Kate therapy, because they're <laughs> doing peekaboo and and again. They're telling parents, get in your baby's face. Make him make eye contact with you. Stay face-to-face with him. Be funny. Be silly. Do anything you can to gain his visual attention. And so, again, it was a really interesting article. If you want to take a look at that, it's on uh, Facebook, uh, teachmetotalk.com page. So I have been trying to consistently... Uh, link articles or other sites or things that might be interesting for our readers. And if you'll become a fan of teachmechalk.com on there, that'll show up in your homepage uh, for Facebook. Or, again, it's on the website. There's a little um, at teachmechalk.com on the real website. There's a little column over in the, it's like the right-hand corner of the page that you can link there or at least see anything new that I've posted on there. So and there was an interesting study about um in October about contagious yawning in children with autism but and maybe we'll talk about that next week. When we take this great question from a mom named Sally who was worried about her little boy who's not quite two uh, about whether or not he may have apraxia. So next week we'll talk about that contagious yawning study and about um that question with that mom. Does that sound like a plan? Sounds great. All I was right. going to ask Laura, does this article that you you linked on there, does it have anything about the numbers, the statistics of likelihood of a sibling of an autistic child being autistic? I don't remember that. I think that they just quoted the general statistics, which are now you know close to one in ninety children right. being diagnosed with autism in the United States. Um, I, I don't. To, I'll make that my little homework to see if I. Last time I researched that, tried to research that. What's the likelihood if you had you know say your first child had a diagnosis of autism? What's the likelihood of having a second child with autism? And the last uh-huh. time I I tried to find numbers on that, it was. Oh my, probably eight years ago, and the numbers they had at that point or that I was able to find weren't really significantly high um you weren't at a, you were at a greater risk but not a significant significantly greater risk of having a second child with autism and I questioned it then I mean I wondered um it didn't seem didn't seem like it reflected what I see in practice because what I see in practice would would have higher numbers. You know, I think that that there is definitely a higher incidence among families with one child diagnosed and the likelihood that subsequent children are going to be autistic is definitely increased. And that number didn't really, it did reflect a slight increase, but not very much. And I, I bet the number has been adjusted in the last eight years, and I'll see if I can get a number before next week that's, you know, what the latest research indicates, because at that point I thought, I wish that were true, you know. I know, I, I know. Tired. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know, and those those families that have to deal with not only one child with special needs, but multiple children who have mm-hmm. really, um you know, lots and lots of issues going on. What a drain on those families. But haven't you had and, a lot of kids on your caseload oh, over yeah. the years where, oh, yeah. you know, the one had it and then the, and it may be a, a different, um, a different screen. Yeah. Yes, I'm not <laughs> yeah. saying they all look exactly alike, but right. um, 
the incidence, I think, is definitely increased. And I'll try and get a number just to share with our listeners for next week. That sounds good. And, you know, I think I would dare say that that happens with other kinds of uh, developmental delays or disorders as well, too. Right. But that'll be interesting to to look at those numbers if you can find something like that. So that's our agenda for next week. We hope you'll join us back next Sunday at 6 o'clock Eastern Time for Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. Thanks so much. Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.